What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks to the future and says, Hey, I just met you. This is crazy. Here's my number. So call me, maybe. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. You went like two lines longer than I would have thought with that. But anyway, Who are I'm, you? I'm Joe McCormick. Okay, that's all I wanted to know. Now, uh, today <laughs> we wanted to talk a bit about space elevators. We recently Woo. talked about uh, the concept of torque on forward thinking, and, uh, and torque plays a big part in space elevators. In general, a space elevator is uh, some way for us to climb into space as opposed to using rockets to thrust us into space. That's the general well, idea. Why, why would we want to do that? Well, uh, mainly because thrusting ourselves into space with the help of rockets is incredibly expensive and also 
more than a little dangerous. Whenever you're trying to ride explosives into the atmosphere, there comes a an element of danger associated with that. And uh, but mainly it's cost. And if you think about it, if we can get things to space without having to uh, have that huge cost, it'll be easier for us to get more stuff into space and then build stuff in space. You know, if we could build spacecraft or space stations in space as opposed to assemble them here on Earth and then find some way of getting them out there. Uh, that could really speed things up. Right, yeah. They don't have to go through the atmosphere. Uh, yeah, you, you could design a, a spacecraft that was never meant to go through the atmosphere and it would be perfectly fine because you'd build it out there in space. And we don't want to give the impression that we necessarily think that the rocket program was not worth what we spent on it. No, I'm giving that impression. Oh, okay. Complete. No, no, of course it was <laughs> I'm worth very pro-space exploration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pro, Pro-rockets. Rockets are But cool. uh, the numbers are pretty grim, like... Throughout the history of the rocket program, they say that it averaged about $10,000 per pound. That's expensive. To send things into space. More expensive than the the salmon that I like to buy at my local grocery store. Significantly and more expensive. Well, they're they're looking at only only four or five hundred dollars a pound for space elevators, right? To and get stuff into space. So. Now, let's keep in mind Hy- that, of course, hypothetically, right. <laughs> and this is after we've built one of these magical space elevators, which yeah, which we haven't done yet, right. but yeah. but. We're getting ahead of ourselves, people. Yeah, where did this idea come from? Does well, anybody know? Yes, I do know. Okay, so if you wanna if you wanna look at the first suggestion of building something to allow us to get into space without using rockets, you got to go all the way back to 1895. And uh, that's when a fellow by the name Konstantin Tsiolkovsky uh, suggested that we, uh, that uh, it's kind of a thought experiment. It wasn't ever meant to be a real experiment, but mm-hmm. said, so what if we were to build a tower, an actual physical tower from the Earth's surface all the way up into space. And the idea being that uh, if you built it high enough, you could climb to the top of that tower, step off the edge, and you would just stay there. Because you would you would be in orbit around the Earth as opposed to falling, plummeting to the Earth. You would be beyond uh, gravity in that sense. Or really, you'd just be falling to the Earth at the same rate as the Earth is turning, so you're constantly in free fall. Mm-hmm. Would that be geostationary orbit? Uh, well, the tower would be in geostationary orbit because it was directly connected to the ground. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's a tower. So, uh, it's not really geostationary in the sense we think of a geostationary satellite. Um, yeah. and you would, I guess, be geostationary. Well, I guess you, it would depend on if what, you, if you, if you jump into the, you know, atmosphere, into the non-atmosphere, into space, then you would be in geosynchronous orbit. Kind of. But I mean, the tower it, would it would depend on, it would depend well, on whether or not you were at the equator. We okay. should distinguish <laughs> between geosynchronous and geostationary, right? They're okay. Not the same thing. No. But either way, it doesn't, it all depends on whether or not you're at the equator. So it's the, the, the point is kind of moot. Uh, but anyway. Anyway, yeah. Constantine <laughs> suggests building a tower as, you know, it's just a thought experiment again. Uh, then you move up to about 1960 and then a fellow named Yuri Artsatonov. Boy, uh, it's, I'm terrible at, at, uh, these, these Russian names. Uh, but he suggests a, the first, what we would think of as a real space elevator. This is something that is, uh, using, tensile strength, a taut tether as opposed to a tower. So in other words, instead of building a a solid structure that reaches all the way up into uh, orbit, which would 
obviously impossible. Yeah, it, the compression that you, the compressive forces that would yeah. act upon the base of this tower would be so great as nothing, nothing we know of could withstand that that yeah. amount of pressure. The tallest man-made structure in Dubai right now is only it, it comes in under three thousand feet. Yeah, so fewer than the multiple miles. Exactly. To, yeah. Yeah. So, so this suggestion would be: Well, what if instead of building a tower, we had the equivalent of a very long rope? And that rope were, was attached to something out beyond, uh, the initial orbit of the Earth and allow, or, you know, something that would be in orbit around the Earth, go beyond that point and tie off to another object. And then you have essentially centrifugal force keeping that, that line taut. You have it anchored on the ground on one side, anchored to some object that's circling the Earth on the other side, and that's what's keeping the rope taut. And then you find some way of being able to climb that rope. And that was the very basic idea that became uh, the space elevator notion. There were a few other people who worked independently uh, and also came up with the same idea around the same time, but his was the first. And uh, the idea started getting some traction in the general public beyond just you know physicists and, and engineers around 1979. And that's when Sir Arthur C. Clarke wrote The Fountains oh. of Paradise. There you go. Which was a fictional account of this sort of idea of building a space elevator. And once that entered into the, the, uh, the, the circle of science fiction nerds out there, uh, the idea started to kind of filter into the general population. I'd still say that there are a lot of people who don't know what a space elevator is or have never heard of this term, but, um, but it's, it's something that is not completely foreign to everyone. It pops up in a lot of sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, and because it's you know, again for the idea, same ideas that we've talked about before, it really helps the with uh, cutting down the cost. And well, one of the big problems we have with our space exploration programs is that uh, they cost a, a, a pretty good amount of money. Now, granted, if you compare that amount of money to other programs in the United States, for example, it's a tiny, tiny amount, but it's still an amount you have to convince politicians to spend. For us to to be able to fund these programs, and that right. gets well, tough. It's, it's a uh, you could say that there's a large return on investment, right? I mean, yeah. any scientific endeavor is bound to turn out lots of good benefits for the future. But oh, sure, even if it's not just the space elevator, you know, all kinds of carbon nanotube technology and other fascinating things could be yeah. created around this, which would also be worth the research dollars. But 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 convincing a politician of that, you say, right. hey, we could get some ideas from this, and they go, who? Well, yeah. well, and you, and not to put how, all the, how soon in the next two months, right? Yeah. Right, and not not to put all the blame on oh, politicians because not, they not. are answering. They're answering. <laughs> Why not? Because they're answering to people. <laughs> okay, and the people yeah. are saying, "I'm paying taxes. What are you spending my tax money on?" And the the politician says, "I'm spending tax money on this thing that may not ever work." The and then the taxpayer says, "Why am I paying my taxes?" So I don't yeah. play, put all the blame on the politicians. Completely. I hold them accountable, but I don't necessarily blame them uh, because I'm not in that position. So I'm not the one aging 10 years for every actual human year. Um, some of those people seem really comfortable, though, so I do blame them a little bit. Uh, mm. Anyway, that's that kind of covers the history of it. So let's talk about what the actual design of one of these things would be. Uh, we kind of talked about a little bit about okay. that anchor point. but Well, essentially, <clears throat> like you said, um, it would rely on centrifugal force, but not just centrifugal force, right? Uh, right. So you're saying that there are essentially two parts. There is a tether and there is a climber. Now, if we talk about the tether first, this is – imagine a 
long, very thin ribbon going from the surface of the Earth at the equator mm-hmm. um, 22,000 miles out into space. Right. Um, or 62,000 miles, very far out, uh, yep. past geo, geostationary orbit. Right. Um, and it would have to have something really heavy at the end of it to keep it pulled taut. So some ideas have included things like, well, let's lasso an asteroid. I, and I'm tie going to that. I'm going to just stop you for one second and say we probably should say massive rather than heavy. Mm. There you go. Okay. Good point. Excellent. Yeah. Point but taken. that's but but continue. <laughs> But Continue. thanks for breaking my flow there. Yeah. You're welcome. Okay, so well, they're going to be writing to me, Joe. Exactly. So. Exactly. A very massive object, uh-huh. like a massive asteroid. Right. Um, or we could just build something really heavy out there. Or one thing massive. That, that massive. <laughs> one uh, idea I like a lot that I've heard is just to use all of the massive garbage left behind from building things in space and okay. make a big trash ball out of it. Right. Um, that's very massive. So you, you coalesce goes, all the all the trash into right. one yeah, mass. You, you make a weight out of the garbage. Um, or, 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 for example, a, a space station could be used, mm-hmm. uh, something that, you know, people could live on and grow pretty things in or something. Yeah. Well, or, especially if you're using that to, you know, deliver materials directly to the space station. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the space station's also like a space port if we're looking far off into the future where you want to build stuff out there. Okay, but so what you have to imagine now is that it's not just – so the centrifugal force acts on that and you just imagine like if you stand somewhere and you hold a string with a ball on the end of it and spin around in a circle, the the weight of the ball will pull the string. Right. If you, if you spin fast enough, you start the, – the ball will lift off the ground mm-hmm. and if you're spinning – quite fast enough then it'll it'll be pulled taut and almost horizontal out mm-hmm. from you. Yeah, and but so there're actually two forces acting on the tether. So there's the centrifugal force pulling the tether outward and then there's the gravity, just the weight of the tether in the earth's atmosphere pulling down right. on the tether. Right. And these two forces pulling in each direction keep the tether straight. Right. So that so, something can climb it. So the the Designs I've seen, this very thin ribbon, it actually has a, a tapered um, yeah, element to it. It, it has it's, to be thickest in the middle. Right. In the middle, it's thickest, and then it tapers down to the thinnest points at either end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very much for that reason, to in order for it to be strong enough to not only withstand the pull from the centrifugal force, but also withstand the massive amount of gravity that's pulling down on it as well. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, that these designs are looking at this this incredibly thin ribbon mm-hmm. that has to support a huge amount of weight. So that's one of the big challenges, yeah, right? What kind of materials could possibly oh. be stretched that thin? Well, we'll get into that in a minute, but um I mean because that's the real question. Right. Here. That that's the central can we do it? Right. Um, and well and anyway, that's others, the but, tether, right? Yeah, so that's the tether um and a, another part of the tether is the question about where do you put it? Right. I mean, you Besides say that it has to be, it has to be at the equator, to, but yeah. can you make a base w- that holds it down at the bottom? Uh, one thing I've seen is that a lot of people propose making a mobile uh, sea base, yeah. like one that floats in the ocean and can move around. And the reason for that is um, what if something is flying towards the tether and you need to move it? Uh-oh. You know. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, interesting. You, 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 you make you would a not, face. You, you would want well, neither a, a rocket nor an airplane nor a very yeah. large bird to uh, to to run into this. Um, yeah. So therefore, it can also uh, it's uh, that can help it avoid like weather events. You know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah like can, like, like some, something in the in the Pacific is what I've heard people talk yeah. about. Mostly. So so anyway, so you have so the the tether. It's anchored at this mobile station at mm-hmm. the bottom. It's got a big weight out in space, and then you have the climber, and that's the part that's going to be most familiar to us. That's just like the elevator climber that we're used to. It's a pod or some kind of carrying device right. that rolls up the tether. Some sort of container that has a, a means of gripping onto that ribbon mm-hmm. and climbing it. Uh, usually we talk about it just being using the force of friction. So it right. has to have something that has a lot of torque to it that can mm-hmm. grip onto that ribbon tightly enough to be able to climb up from the surface of the earth all the way up. Now yeah, granted... With rollers or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. The further up it goes... The less it has to deal with gravity, uh, but uh, and then the centrifugal force can actually take over uh, ultimately. But while you're trying to get it up that high, you have to have something that's going to grip on quite tightly. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's interesting also about how do you power something like that? How do you uh, give energy to this climber so it keeps on going up? And by the way, these climbers can be of various sizes. There's, there's some that talk about, some of the designs I've read talk about, uh, climbers that would carry a certain amount of, like, certain number of hundreds of pounds of material, uh, and you would be able to send up around six or so per day. Um, w- on every few hours, you'd be able to send another one up. Well, now let's clarify. That doesn't mean six there and back. No, trips no, no. A six, day. you could launch, essentially. So you could, in this scenario, you'd have multiple climbers going up the tether at the same, same time. time. Right. Or you might do it over the course of six days. One per day is being sent up. Because one of the issues about a, a space elevator, you know, one of the downsides compared to rockets is it takes a lot longer for you to get out there than it would if you were on a rocket. Right. You, you know, don't have that terrific initial burst. Yeah, of... you're, t- you're talking about weeks. Yeah, you're not traveling at, you know, 30,000 miles per hour or whatever. It's it's climbing at a steady rate, uh, but it could take several days or several weeks for it to get to where it's going. It's like driving cross-country. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but more. Uh, yes, agreed. And, and that means that if we're using it to transport people, it would essentially be like a hotel room or probably more likely cruise quarters on a uh, like a, a naval vessel where you'd have a cramped but serviceable amount of space to yourself that would be climate controlled and protected from the elements so mm-hmm. that you could survive, especially once you start getting out beyond the breathable atmosphere. I, you have, to have heard, a pressurized cabin and everything. Yeah, I've heard concerns about uh, how these pods, if they carried passengers, would be subject to possible radiation. And sure. Oh, so yeah, once you get up be... into the past the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. once you get beyond the Earth's uh, protective atmosphere, that would definitely be a concern. It's, you would have to have the right kind of shielding on these pods. Even if you were just transporting... Uh, uh, you know, just just raw material. Depending on that raw material, if you had created any circuit boards or anything, it could be some, very sensitive. Yeah, yeah. there there are electronics that could definitely be affected by by any type of cosmic radiation. Uh, so you would definitely want to have shielding on your pods, whether they're going to be moving live people or whatever or uh, inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. So now with the radiation, we're getting into talking about some of the challenges, but I, I think it's time to get to the big challenge. Okay. What's the one big thing that is making some people say, we'll never have this, the it'll never work? Finding a material that has the tensile strength to be able to 
make one of these ribbons. That's right. the big challenge. It, it's just mind-boggling how strong this tether would have to be. I mean, you've never seen a string that's thousands of miles long. Uh, it's just impossible to imagine that it could withstand the forces. Right. Yeah, and and it would have to be uh, incredibly resilient and without it being super, super, super dense and heavy – because you know, the heavier it gets, the stronger it has to be in order for it to uh, to withstand the 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 tension strength from its own gravity. gravity yeah, you know. So uh, yeah, and, and not to mention the fact that you're going to have stuff climbing on it. So you'd you'd have to have something that's both very strong and not super dense. The most promising material that we have uh, happens to be carbon nanotubes. Yeah. Well, but mm. but but right right now, I mean, okay. Well, there, there's some different research being done. Classically, carbon nanotubes, once you get them into a into a long string, have only been about a millimeter long, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's not quite long enough to get into space. <laughs> you need a lot of those. Well, let's stop for a second. Just quick definition: What is a carbon nanotube? Okay, you take a sheet of graphene. Mm-hmm. The, this is a sheet of carbon atoms that are all bound together. It looks like a bunch of a uh, little hexagons. Hexagons, right? Yeah. That are all bound on each side with other hexagons, and uh, it's a sheet of graphene. And then you roll that sheet of graphene into a tight tube, and the edges bind together. That's a carbon nanotube. And depending on the way you roll that sheet of graphene, so that you know the various edges of those hexagons line up, depending on on what direction you roll it. The carbon nanotube will have different uh, uh, features. It'll, and if you roll it one way, it's an incredible uh, semiconductor. If you roll it another way, it's as str- it's stronger than steel and many more times lighter than steel. So uh, it's a, it's kind of talked about as a miracle material because mm-hmm. there's so many different potential applications for it. It yeah. shows up a lot in these like, well, if we could do this, you know. yeah, right, right. Carbon nanotubes are kind of like that's that's where unobtainium. <laughs> yeah, except that it's bit. real stuff. It is real right, stuff. Exactly. I, yeah, yeah. They, they were discovered back in 1991 by uh, Sumio Ijima. Um, but, uh, but you know, research into this kind of stuff goes back to the 1950s. And uh, some, some new research continuing today. Rice University back in January of this year started talking about this, um, this lamp that they had suspended from a, uh, a wet-spooled carbon nanotube string that could be hundreds of meters long, um, being being uh, suspended and powered by this carbon nanotube string due to the electromagnetic properties right. and of the, the carbon fact, And the fact that it's strong that enough it's to, strong enough to, yeah. to and hold something much heavier. There's a video of this online. It's incredible. Yeah, this is neat stuff. And so that's very promising. The the I've seen some recent uh, criticisms that say that mm-hmm. even at the proposed strongest that we could make a, a carbon nanotube right now, based upon what we know right now, it still would not meet the requirements of what we would need if we were to build this tether. That that the tensile strength is not quite what we would require. And also that carbon nanotubes, while they'd be very strong in one direction, are very weak in other directions. So an impact along the side or some other uh, uh, compromising uh, event could right. end up having it just shred apart. You get a snowstorm or a kite or something and it right. all – yeah. Or yeah, some, the, some, I, some naughty person with scissors. <laughs> what I've seen described is like a, the chemical bonds unzipping, sort of. Yeah, the word it, was yeah. unzipping. The, the word, the analogy I saw would be, it would be like getting a run in your stockings. Yeah. Which I hate when that happens to me. I know you do. Yeah. You well, I mean, don't, don't we all? 
you also hate it when it happens to me? That's very sweet of you. I don't. Um, so, <laughs> but well, okay. So, but that's one challenge right there. Is the biggest one? Yes. Is, well, uh, not we're not even done with carbon nanotubes. Um, so, okay. No, we're not. So imagine because <laughs> I shut well, you down earlier, isn't it, Joe? <laughs> some experts say like you can't do the carbon. They're not strong enough. Right. Let's imagine that they are strong enough. Okay. So, some experts disagree. Right. Sure. You know, there sure. Are people there's in there's material contention. sciences who say that yeah it is strong enough and and so. I, obviously, we don't know enough to arbitrate on that. Um, but even if they are strong enough, do you know how long it takes to make these things and how tiny the amounts we can make at one time are? Well, it, it's like uh, the, the ways that we make them. You, earlier, you described this hypothetical thing where you're rolling up graphene. That sounds like, oh, it's like a big thing of wrapping paper. Or you just roll it out. The way they make these you have to get down to these, the atomic scale for that to work, but yes, for these extremely uh, intense reactions you do in some controlled chamber in a lab, like you you, you create uh, arcs of hot electricity between two pieces of graphene in mm-hmm. some chamber, or not graphene, uh, graphite, mm-hmm. and uh, and that causes like these little pieces of soot to come off mm-hmm. that that have carbon nanotubes in them, and you can collect them. I mean, it's. It's a tiny scale operation. Sure. Uh, yeah. And also there's the problem where they cause cancer a lot. Um, in <laughs> Oh, didn't know that one. It's, 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 it's worse than asbestos when they get into your lungs. Never breathe in carbon nan- nanotubes if you can avoid it. It's, uh, it's, it's thought that perhaps, um, a lot of the air pollution, um, diseases that are caused are caused by carbon nanotubes from naturally occurring, uh, sources. Burning processes. Right. Yeah. Well, wow. it, I, I would also go ahead and say that that while that's a limiting factor right now, one of the wonderful things about technology is that if we see that there's the potential for a really transformative material out there, it gives lots of companies the incentive to find new and better processes oh, for producing it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, otherwise we wouldn't even have microprocessors because oh, transistors were really well, hard to make. As we've said many times before, this is not a statement of don't try. No, it's no, just it's just one of those. Like, how hard it is right now. Exactly. Right, right now, right now, space elevators are a, a, a super cool idea. There is no way we could start building one right away. Like, well, we the, just we're just not there. The to be clear, the tether is like that. The climber we're pretty good on, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we there's still the question of how you deliver the energy to it. The the most uh, common answer I see to that is that the climbers, the pods themselves, would have solar panels on one side to help collect solar energy and use that for uh, generating electricity. And also they would have sensors that you would aim lasers at. Mm-hmm. And the lasers right. would provide the energy necessary to convert into the electricity it would need to, to climb the ribbon. Mm-hmm. So uh, n- neither of those things are impossible. Obviously, we have solar panels and we can do things like that with lasers. I mean, there are other people who say that you could use microwaves instead of lasers. But, I mean, these are the various ways that we could use to power the thing. Uh, all of that is not just in theoretical. We could build that we just don't have anything for it to climb, right? And that's kind of a um, problem. That's and yeah, the, point, the yeah. climbing infrastructure is clearly the hardest part. And uh, so it's not just how difficult it is to make the material for the tether, but it's also even if we had the super strong material, actually implementing it. And I'm talking about having this tether stretching from the Earth to space without uh, the force, like the Coriolis force that would be caused by the spinning of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that would create drag on the tether or on the climber um, that could cause these 
dreadful bends in the tether. And right, that's which is no another good. another yeah. issue, uh, another um, reason why people uh, say carbon nanotubes are a bad idea because – uh, while it can be very strong if you're pulling on it, if you were to push it in any way, if you were to insert a bend, that's where thing, you start running into problems. Mm-hmm. And then there's then there's this issue of uh, apparently space right outside the Earth's atmosphere is kind of a junkyard. Uh, yeah, we've left a lot of stuff up there as, yeah. as we've gone exploring. And uh, because of the speed with which things fly around the Earth, they gather massive kinetic energy, mm-hmm. even just a tiny little paint chip in orbit if it hits you at going you know how many however many thousands of miles per hour or something in orbit like that is going that it's a huge impact even sure. if it has almost no mass right um, yeah because momentum is mass times you know the 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 force the speed so right. uh, if um, your speed is really high and your mass is really low it's still a big impact yeah mm-hmm. so we'd have all this to worry about having something stretching from the earth into space is a liability if something hits it, it could very well sever it. Well, it, if it if it only damages it, the answer I've seen to that is that every space elevator would have, as part of the space elevator, uh, repair climbers. Mm-hmm. So these would be climbers that would do regular maintenance on a daily basis, climbing up and down the the, the uh, ribbon and reinforcing it or repairing it, uh, so that those sort of dangers would be minimized. Uh, it's still something that you have to be concerned about because if it's if it's hitting just right, which, you know, let's be fair, space is big, so it, it the odds are low, but it's not impossible. Right. You know, if, so if it hits it just right, you could still end up with a disaster as yeah. far as the space elevator is concerned. Also, you do have the, the you know, unpleasant but not entirely unlikely suggestion that um, that terrorists would see this, you know, 62,000-mile-long target and say, hey, this is a thing that we can mess with. Right. Now, well, now of if course. You're, if, but if your space elevator, if it's mainly used to, to move materials around uh, and if it's anchored to something like an asteroid, then – you know, it would be a huge economic loss, but at least it would just be an economic loss. Right. As opposed to if the, if you have a space station on the other end or there are people in transport, obviously then the cost is much higher because you're talking about human lives that are at risk. Um, although I guess, you know, depending I, on what I you're I can't imagine any attack would be good. Um, no attack would be good. I'm well, saying there's some attacks that are, by their very nature, worse, way worse. I mean, well, well, but 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 also there would be, you know, this would probably be the kind of thing that uh, global scientific communities would come together to yeah, work this, on, and so it would probably be very well protected. This is not something that I think one nation would be behind. This is something that would require a consortium of of nations to, and in fact, there are consortiums that are working on this, where it's you know European Union, United States, Japan. Yeah. Lots of c- countries. Well, that brings me to – so um, we've talked about in in theory what would it look like, what are the challenges. But is anybody doing any work? Like have we designed prototypes for this? Well, there are there are lots of organizations that are working on the problem. Uh, whether or not – I mean prototypes for things like climbers definitely exist. Well, yeah, I've seen stuff about that. Like they've had contests um, – to have people design climber, you know, the question is, how fast can you get this thing up the tether? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in in 2012, a company called Liftport, um, which if you happen to look up the How Stuff Works article, um, uh, how space elevators work, uh, Liftport is the main company that we were talking about there, their concepts for in that article. Um, they just in September of 2012 raised over $62,000 on Kickstarter for building robot climbers on a two-kilometer skyward cable. Um, that's mm. that's going to be held aloft by helium balloons, hypothetically, to, uh, to test stuff out. 
Uh, so, and, and then yeah. there's the International Space Elevator Consortium, which is kind of what I was referring to earlier, or ISEC, as some people may know it, uh, that are uh, all about looking into promoting and developing space elevator technology. And uh, they make the point that, kind of like what we had mentioned earlier, especially you, Lauren, you brought it up, um, that there's a lot of things we can associate with developing space elevators that could end up giving us enormous benefits and they are not necessarily they won't necessarily directly lead to a space elevator but we'll still be able to use that that kind of material or technology that we develop in other ways that we can't necessarily anticipate right now and therefore it's a valuable process even if ultimately we come to the conclusion that a space elevator is not feasible because or we not still worthwhile. end up yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that, that's our motto around here, right? Even if you can't do it, you can learn something from it. That's right. You, even if the only thing you learn is that you can't do it, that's still learning something. Right. I mean, it really is. That's, that's kind of the way science is. Uh-huh. Um, and I want to talk a bit about, about, all right, so let's, let's assume we reach a point where we can do this. It's all doable. We've built it. It's working. Yay. And, uh, and we can move stuff into space. What would this mean? We kind of touched on it before. We could build things directly in space, not building them here on Earth, which allows me to move into my rant that I told Lauren I was going to do. Yes. Uh, th- th- there might, there was a documentary that Jonathan had seen. That came um, out in 2009, directed by J.J. Abrams. It's the relaunch of a beloved franchise called Star Trek. And, uh, and this is where I, I have my rant. There is a scene in this movie where uh, you get to see the Starship Enterprise as it's being built. This is early, early, early in the movie. And it's being built on the surface of the Earth, which makes no sense whatsoever. Okay? The Enterprise is not designed to fly in atmospheres, so why would you build it on the surface of a planet anyway? It's going to have to withstand stresses that it wouldn't withstand within space. So it makes no sense to do it from that sense. Then you have to figure out how to get this huge thing out into space. Wouldn't it just be easier, since there are spaceports orbiting the Earth in this universe, wouldn't it be easier to just build the whole thing in space, in a space dock? And that way it doesn't have the stresses of being built on a planet. You don't have to worry about getting it to escape the planet's atmosphere or gravity. And uh, everything's really easy to move around. It makes no sense. But if you build it in space, you don't get to have little, like, cling-clang workshop sound effects oh, while people are working See, this is no, what drives me nuts. Annoying. That's why pe- people's arguments always come back to, but it looks so it cool. Looks like, really no, no, cool. no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, you uh, want it, you want your cling clang workshop sound effects just like anybody else. When somebody's knocking on the exterior of the Starship Enterprise, you want to hear the little cling clangs, right? And, and, and also, I'm sure a politician, you know, I posited that a politician's kid really wanted something to play on while, you know, in, in their backyard. Mm, and whatever. So, and the, and the skeleton of, uh, you know, Star class. None of this makes sense. The whole reason why we want something why like us. Why talking about this? Wait, 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 wait. Because, because okay. the reason. When Counselor Troy inevitably crashes that ship into a planet later, it will have been already power tested. Uh, your argument is invalid because we're talking <laughs> the original series, not Next Generation. That's Enterprise D you're talking about? I'm talking about 1701, not even Enterprise A. Hey, okay. have you all heard about those space elevators? So <laughs> that's why I'm saying, though. With the space elevator, one of the reasons we would want one is because we would be able to build things in space directly uh-huh. as opposed to having to construct them here on Earth. Well, that's because a big deal. That is a huge deal because it means that we can build things that are just meant for 
uh, travel through space or just meant to be in space. They're never meant to be on a planet that has gravity or atmosphere. And that that removes a lot of limitations we have. Well, this contrast actually brings up something interesting, which is that while uh, – so the material science challenges in making the tether from Earth are really big, but basically from what I've read, we could make a space elevator on the moon. It could be done. That's a lot different, yeah, because you're not the the gravity is one sixth that of what's on Earth. So yeah. you would at least be able to take that into account. So uh, if you're talking about uh, like hardcore lunar exploration or using the moon as a base for further space exploration, which a lot of people think we will because it's easier to launch from the moon, even if you're using rockets and right. stuff. Um, that that's a good possibility. Except that, how do you get the stuff to the moon in the first place? Well, yeah, we would still need to use rockets. You'd to still have to use rockets. So yeah, so even if you're talking about building things into space, you still would have to get the materials to the moon first, unless you could use the the material on the moon itself, that regolith, in some way to actually construct useful things for space exploration. If you could, if you could use the stuff that's on the moon and use that as raw materials, then designing something like a base station on the moon would be amazing. Otherwise, all you've really done is said, okay, instead of trying to get all this huge amount of material into orbit, we have to actually get all this huge amount of material to the moon, and then from there we'll put it on a space elevator and then get it into It's the long game, Jonathan. Somebody wants all that helium-3, by the way, what right? I, what I'm saying is that the Starship Enterprise, it makes no sense for it to be built on the planet. <laughs> okay, right. no, but look, what what else would a future with space elevators look like? I mean, one thing that it it almost goes without saying is, is that it would open the floodgates to for, for space all, exploration. And colonization I mean, down the road. But exploration, certainly. like Especially if you're talking about unmanned spacecraft – uh, it would make it so much easier to launch unmanned spacecraft so that you could, you know, you, you wouldn't have to look at some company that it's the only company in the world that makes these rockets. And therefore, you are stuck at whatever price it's going to be set there. Mm-hmm. If you had a way of getting stuff up into space without having to rely on rockets, then the the cost of launching a vehicle drops so dramatically that I think we would see many more probes being sent out, which is fantastic because we've seen uh, uh, programs that NASA has has suggested be shelved because the the costs were so high that Just the sheer launch cost yeah, yeah. the mm. launch cost being a huge part of any mission's cost uh, they were so high that they were canceled so. That's really what the future would look like. It would look like a lot more space exploration. And a lot more space elevators, right? Sure. Yeah, because once you've got one up there. Exactly. It becomes that much easier to build the next one and the next one. Um, Yeah, to the point where the equator just becomes a a hub and there's like spokes coming out of it everywhere. Yeah, turns into like a little grass skirt kind of thing. It would be like a giant planetary tilt-a-whirl, which is awesome. No, I think it's really an interesting idea, and I really think that if we can if we can master this technology and actually make it happen, it will have such a dramatic impact on the space exploration industry that it's hard to even imagine it right now. Uh, but that's a big if if we can conquer it because it's the challenges are not you know they're not trivial. No, I want to caution the challenges, but I want it so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm glad that there are people who are determined and slash or crazy enough to pursue this. 
uh, because it means that, again, we are going to benefit from this. Even if it doesn't work, ultimately, we will still benefit from the whole process. So uh, that's really what I would leave off with, saying that no matter what, things are going to uh, – we're going to learn stuff and we're going to benefit from this uh, this process even if it ultimately mm-hmm. doesn't work. Research is winning. Research is winning. Knowledge is power. And knowing's half the battle and et cetera, et cetera. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of Forward Thinking. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Remember, you can get in touch with us and let us know what you think. Let us make suggestions for future topics. Uh, we have an email address that is fwthinking at discovery.com. You can go to fwthinking.com and see all of the videos, the blog posts. You can listen to the podcasts. You can find our social media and interact with us that way. I highly recommend it. FWThinking.com. Come visit us. Come be part of the conversation. We look forward to hearing from you, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.